I think we've had a lifetime to observe that those who critique, pick apart, and tear down others get significantly more attention paid to them than those who build up, encourage, affirm. Loved ones, what's going on? I'm Bruce, and this is A Bigger Story. That critique, pick apart, and tear down thing as opposed to build up, encourage, and affirm, you can take it outside the realm of words and rhetoric and simply notice that the dynamite-aided implosion of a tall building will get coverage on the television news, but the actual building of a building typically isn't news because seeing things blow up is more exciting than seeing things built slowly over time. Reality shows maintain their edge by always having at least one major protagonist whose job it is to tear the others down. The obvious examples, sadly, are news media, especially 24-hour opinion networks. I struggle to call them news networks these days. So news media and politics, they feed off each other. The wink-wink, nod-nod is that the politicians who are most craven in their tearing down of their opponents will get the most news coverage because covering the political cage matches is what gets the most ratings, the most web clicks. If it bleeds, it leads. Even in the allegedly more rarefied realms of religion, theology, church, the dynamic still holds. If you want to be turned off to religion forever, and maybe especially Christianity, follow the never-ending invective on Twitter. On second thought, yeah, don't. And it's not just the right-wing conservative evangelical Christian nationalist people who viciously attack those who disagree with them, although they're especially good at it. They're the noisiest ones in the game. But left-wing, progressive Christians give them a run for their money. I locate myself in the progressive lane, but many of the loudest progressive voices these days are making me more prone to resist labeling myself at all. There are doctrinal purity tests and thought police on both sides, and God help the person who doesn't sufficiently measure up. The dilemma is that sitting on the fence doesn't work either. Straddling a fence will hurt you right where it counts. I say all this as a preamble to saying what I'm going to say next, which is one, I am not anti-church, and I am not anti a well-thought-out, coherent theological system or framework. Matter of fact, I'm very for that. And I am not anti-liturgy. Liturgy is the mode of expression, the words, the order, the detailed ritual instructions called rubrics that make up a particular group's worship life. I think some of you may have gotten the impression from the last episode, episode 23, that I might be anti those things. So let me clarify. I offered up the idea in the previous episode that there's room for only one thing at the center of a thing, including there's only room for one thing at the center of our souls. Then I shared that for a thoroughgoing Christian, that one thing at the center is supposed to be Christ. Christ, hence the name Christian, Christian. It's not Christ-ish. From there, the next step, if someone wants to be a thoroughgoing Christian and not Christ-ish, the next step is to be aware of what competes with Christ to occupy the center of our souls. We talked about the typical competitors for the center of our souls being children, family, work, money, church, none of which are Christ. And this is where I think 
I may have confused some of you. If we are part of a family, whether blood relatives or a family we choose and construct in some other way, that family should be vitally important to us. If we bring children into the world, we should absolutely cherish them. If we're taking a paycheck from someone in return for our work, we should work hard and take that mutual relationship very seriously. We live in a capitalist economic system, and if we want to eat food of our own choosing, live in a structure that makes us happy, someday perhaps retire in comfort, then we should take the stewardship of money and resources seriously too. It's just a practically smart thing to do. If we choose to be a member of a church, we should understand the covenantal nature of being a member of a church and do our utmost to behave with integrity to whatever those covenants are. And I think a lot of people don't even understand that being a member of a church is tantamount to agreeing to and submitting to certain covenants of belief and relationship, which has nothing to do with whether we liked the hymns we sung on Sunday or how much we liked or disliked the sermon or the pastor. You get the idea. There is another side to this coin. The other side is called grace. What grace is meant to teach us is that even if we don't understand the covenantal nature of being part of a church, and even if we fail to align our behavior in some appropriate, constructive way, and even if we've hit the eject button on church or religion entirely, it doesn't mean we're out of the parade. So in the last episode, episode 23, the one right before this one, I said that none of the things that I just mentioned, again, family, children, and so on, should be at the center of our souls if we want to be thoroughgoing Christians. I wasn't saying that those things are bad. They're not, not at all. But central to the most basic of Christian understandings is that any of those things, family, children, work, money, can be taken away from us. We can lose them. And it can be tragic when that happens. And the one thing that can't be taken away is the eternal cosmic revelation of the divine that we call Christ. And the most healthy, sustainable choice for someone who believes that is to center our lives on the one thing that can't be taken from us ever. It's the only way that we can cope with the potential and tragic loss of all those other things. One version, the best version, in my opinion, of Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, includes these words. Were they to take our house, goods, honor, child, or spouse, though life be wrenched away, they cannot win the day. The kingdom's ours forever. That sums it up for a Christian, and you can find appropriate corollaries in most of the other major world religions, too. When I started a bigger story. My wife, Maureen, challenged me to share the ideas I want to share, but perhaps to not do so in an edgy, snarky way, but in a more gentle, loving, hopeful way. And boy, was I angry at her for suggesting that because sitting with friends with some beers and letting the snark fly is like ultimate fun for me. But Maureen was right. And if I ever just want to go full on snarkastic on the podcast, I'll start with a warning and I'll try to keep those times to a minimum. And I know I just disappointed some of my fellow snarkophiles, but there are plenty of people tearing apart, picking apart, tearing down, being snarky all the time, even in the service of what I think are good causes. And I just want to occupy a different space. 
So I'm not anti-church, but I do think that our whole world, especially our Western world, and in particular, my country, the U.S., if we're going to have churches, we need them to be radically centered on Jesus Christ, who he was, who he is, what he said, taught, what he modeled with his own behavior. And we need those churches to be much more focused on those things than most seem to be. The church of my youth was St. John's Episcopal Church in New York, just across the Hudson River outside of New York City. At age 12 or 13 in the Episcopal Anglican tradition, you prepare for confirmation in confirmation class. As part of that experience at St. John's Episcopal Church, we were each given a little poster, and I still have that poster today. The poster poses a question. If you were arrested today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were arrested today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I'm not anti-church, and I'm not anti-Christian, and I don't intend through a bigger story to ever give the impression that I am. What I am for and what I want to build up, encourage, and affirm is evidence-based Christianity. Enough evidence to not only arrest us, but to convict us. And what does that look like? Well, first thing, I think it looks like communities of people who are exquisitely good at loving one another, forgiving one another, encouraging one another, and when necessary, reconciling with one another. I think it looks like communities of people who are radically inclusive, not radically exclusive. I like the way the mystic monk and spiritual teacher Thomas Merton put it. Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business. And in fact, it is nobody's business. What we are asked to do is to love. And this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. That is what evidence-based Christianity looks like. I think it looks like what Mary, the mother of Jesus, describes in the Gospel of Luke. The lowly are lifted up. The hungry are filled. It looks like what Jesus himself says three chapters later in Luke's Gospel. Good news is given to the poor. The unjustly imprisoned and oppressed are liberated. It looks like what Jesus says in response to an inquiry from John the Baptist in the Gospel of Matthew when John himself is looking for evidence. And Jesus says, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. If that's not evidence, I don't know what is. It looks like Jesus saying later in the Gospel of Matthew that whenever we feed the hungry, provide drink to the thirsty, welcome the immigrant, clothe the naked, when the sick are cared for, and the prisoners are visited. Whenever we do those things, Jesus says we are doing it to him. It's Jesus' way of saying that if we want to see him and want to serve him, we need look no further than those struggling ones. That's what evidence-based Christianity looks like. Christ-centered instead of Christ-ish. My worry 
is that long-established churches, including the ones who are earnestly trying to be evidence-based Christians, are just at this point in history are at the waning end of the long tail of established Christianity. There are fewer and fewer of them. They are aging. And age is not necessarily a determinant of energy and vitality and effectiveness. But it is enough of the time. And the church communities most prone to be evidence-based Christians, Christ-centered Christians in the way I'm suggesting, just aren't replacing their aging and dying adherence with younger ones. And that's part of the problem, too. We don't need adherence. We need agents, people with focused, vital agency. I'm afraid we kind of get three strikes. Strike one is lack of focus. Strike two is lack of focus. And strike three is lack of focus. And someone's going to push back on that and say, no, Bruce, it's grace. It's the story of death and then resurrection. We don't strike out. We get infinite strikes. Old bones can live. And yes, absolutely that's true. But I don't think God wants us to use that as an excuse to not be focused and vital now. And I think it gets used as an excuse a lot. Focus. Most church committee meetings aren't going to get us focused. Arguing over whether it should be wine or grape juice, adult baptism or infant baptism, traditional hymns or more contemporary ones, none of those or a myriad of other things that most churches spend time on are going to get us focused. They're just distractions. Distractions to keep us from focusing on what a desperately hoping, yearning world is on the lookout for. So much of the world is like the three magi who follow a star to locate the baby Jesus. They aren't Christian. The magi weren't Christian. They don't know exactly who or what they're looking for, what form the person or persons are supposed to take, or to what precise location the star ultimately points. But they are looking, searching, earnestly, hopefully, and they'll know it when they see it. And so will we. And when we see it, and if we join whatever it is and whomever it is, and cherish the journey of looking for it, the discovery of it, and the partnering up with it, and not it so much as who, when that happens, we'll be on our way to a much bigger story. A special note for those of you listening to a bigger story in more or less real time, this episode is being recorded on the Friday before Thanksgiving in the U.S. We'll be off for Thanksgiving week. And then beginning Monday, November 28th, 2022, the countdown begins to the final 21 daily episodes of season one of A Bigger Story. And then on January 16th of 2023, we'll begin season two of A Bigger Story. Stay in touch, Bruce at BruceCole.tv. Remember you are loved. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised.